Hey, what's up, Cheat fans? Before we start airing new episodes, I wanted to share one of my favorite Cheat episodes with you. Now, I got a lot of faves, but today, let's revisit The Rare Book Thief. Now, when you think of librarians, you think of a straight-laced bookworm that just loves to be in quiet spaces. You don't think of a librarian as a thief who made a bunch of money stealing books from the library he worked at. Smooth criminal. Enjoy the episode. The library is blessed with two historical collections that deal not only with Carnegie himself, but represent his interests when he was a young boy. This is Greg Priori, and he's talking about the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Andrew Carnegie, a big-time steel tycoon from 19th century America, wasn't just a capitalist. He was a philanthropist who funded the arts and this library. Carnegie really had a love for learning, and through this wonderful institution, felt that this would be a way for the public to escape into another world. Rari talks a lot about Carnegie because it's a part of his job. He works at the Carnegie Library, and he's got a pretty special setup. Now, Priori, he's not just any old librarian. <laughs> no, uh-uh. He's an archivist up on the third floor in the William R. Oliver Special Collections Room. And this room is special for sure. It's filled with all these rare books, original drawings and prints, old maps, manuscripts, you know, archival things. Like, think Bach, Mark Twain, Dickens. There's about 30,000 items in this collection. And any room that holds precious and valuable items like this, it needs a guardian. You can't just have somebody walking out with the original version of Moby Dick in their backpack. The guardian? That was Greg Priori, a meticulous gatekeeper. He even studied archives management at the University of Pittsburgh in the early 90s. Did y'all even know that there was a thing to study like archives management? So we're talking about an archivist who trained in these very archives. And in 1992, he was appointed the sole archivist and manager of the prestigious Oliver Room. In 1991, the library hired appraisers to come in and look at the collection. This is Mary Lynn Pitts. She's a reporter at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. At the time of Priori's appointment, the library had this special collection of theirs appraised. Priori worked with the team to reorganize the archive and figure out how to protect the most fragile pieces. And the appraisers were like, yo, this stuff is kind of important. You might want to keep it somewhere a little more secure than a public library. And at that time, the appraisers wrote a report recommending that the library take the most valuable material and put it in safer storage at one of the local university libraries. But the library didn't do that. Instead, they renovated the space and implemented new, tougher security measures. Priori oversaw all of these changes and made suggestions on how to tighten security. 
which made sense because this archive was in his hands. This was something he'd studied, he trained for, and now it was happening. He was the sole person overseeing the collection. So yeah, he put himself in the middle of it all. No one could come in without him. He had a key to the door that stayed locked all day. And to get in, you needed an appointment. And he personally supervised anyone who came into the room. I mean, this dude sounds like he lived and breathed to protect these old books. But his life didn't completely revolve around his job. He was a family man, a father of four. He loved his kids and his wife. But his job, he really did love his job. As the only guy keeping 30,000 rare books safe. Priori was vigilant, consistent, and took his job so seriously the library would go decades between appraising their collection. And after 25 years, in 2017, administrators decided it was time. And that's when they made a horrifying discovery. That's when the theft was discovered. About $8 million worth of rare and archival material had been taken from the library. Some items were just completely missing. Other books were collapsing at the spine because the insides, the drawings, the maps, the photos had been cut out. One of the items they took was this first edition of a book by Isaac Newton called Principia. And, you know, another copy of this book sold for $3.7 million back in 2016. That's just one book. There was a first edition of this famous classic called The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. There was a first folio edition of a classic poem called The Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer. They took hand-drawn maps. They took atlases. Basically, what disappeared here were items that really detailed the breadth of Western civilization. And there was only one person who had had regular access to that room for the last 25 years. The same person who dedicated his life to the preservation of this collection. Greg Priori. I'm Alzo Slade. From Something Else, this is Cheat. The show where we ask the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, The Rare Book Thief. How two men formed a scheme to steal from the archive for over 20 years. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So, look... I studied history in undergrad, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like a history buff. I understand and appreciate it. But the rare book world, I mean, at this point, you might just be like, yo, these are just some old books. Why should we care about these musty old things? 
I hear you. I understand. But I got to say, I keep coming back to the fact that these are items that have survived the test of time. They tell us something about the past, and they're rare. Stuff you won't just find anywhere, which is why they're so valuable. And that's also why when Mary Lynn first heard a tip about this story, she knew she had to look into it. I have contacts in the library world, and I was at dinner one evening with one of them. And they quietly mentioned to me, they said, well, you know about the theft at the Carnegie Library, right? And I was stunned because I did not know. I got to be honest. This sounds like a scene from a movie that never got made. You're sitting at dinner with your library contacts, getting the juice on a crime that's been committed in she started calling other people from the Rare Books world to see what they've heard, to try to figure out how Greg was able to pull something off of this magnitude. Dun, dun. <laughs> I just did a lot of digging around and ultimately was able to shake the story loose by making phone calls in the library community, the book-selling community, and we were able to report that, you know, more than 300 items had been stolen. Some books were missing. They'd been lifted completely. But what really troubled the appraisers was the physical damage Priori did to the remaining books. You don't have to be a book lover to know that there are some cardinal sins you just don't do when it comes to handling books. And we're not talking about, you know, folding down the corner of a page either. That's disrespectful enough, but this is a whole lot worse than just a couple of dog ears. This guy took a knife to him, to these old rare books already on the brink of disintegration. I mean, bro, what did these books do to you? Sometimes it was just simply a matter of opening a book and using an X-Acto knife to cut out rare prints by Piranesi, the artist, or photographs of uh, Native Americans by Edgar Curtis. Or in other instances, he simply took the book off the shelf, put it in his briefcase. Yeah, this dude was literally cutting things out of these old books. Now, I don't think he was very good at his job because he was supposed to be preserving the collection, not destroying it. I couldn't believe that somebody like Greg Priori would cannibalize books, you know, take an X-Acto knife to these rare books and tear out maps and photographs and artworks and Audubon prints. And it's so destructive. It's cultural theft. So, yes, I was shocked. One of the items Priori took was the first edition copy of a Thomas Jefferson book, and it was signed by him. Another item was a 400-year-old Bible. Bro, a brand-new Bible says the same thing as the 400-year-old Bible. You don't need to steal it. These are parts of our American history that speak to us, but when you see them in person, it's jaw-dropping. There's nothing like seeing an original. 
when you have a firsthand encounter with works like these, when you see Thomas Jefferson's signature on a document, it has an impact on you. And when people destroy these treasures, they don't just steal from people in Western Pennsylvania. They steal from everyone, in a sense. So how did Priori go from being the guardian of the special collection to this thieving robber of old stuff? Nothing big happened. Nothing drastically changed. He just realized that he could. It's the late 90s. He's about six or seven years into the job, and all those years, he just sit in the collections day after day alone. And then one day, he decided to take one book out of the archive. Greg Priori could sit up on the third floor of the Carnegie Library, take whatever he wanted, put it in his briefcase. Nobody questioned him or searched him on the way out. When no one noticed, he kept doing it. I'm trying to picture how this goes down. There's Priori. It's the end of a long day of staring at just books. Nobody had come in all day or the day before, and probably nobody's coming in tomorrow. He looked over the logs for a book that was worth a lot of money, but rarely requested. He picked one that lived high up on the shelf. One that no one would really look for unless you were him. He placed it in his briefcase. If it was a map, he rolled it up and slid it down a pants leg. A small print could be tucked into a manila folder. And then he just walked out the door. Nobody was the wiser. But I can't imagine walking out the door with a 400-year-old map down my pants leg And I get home, take my pants off, and it's just a confetti of old parchment paper. When I first read about it, I was like, this is kind of a crummy thing. This is Professor Travis McDade. He actually studies cases of rare book theft, which is a lot more popular than I would have guessed. I mean, who knew that there was a crime wave of bandits running around stealing dusty old books? But here we are on a podcast talking about it. And then a reporter from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette called me, and she said, have you been paying attention to this? It was Marilyn, the same reporter in this episode. And then we talked for about an hour and a half, and she filled me in on some of the details. And I was flabbergasted is not the right word, but I was impressed by the amount of material this guy had stolen and how long he had done it for. But this wasn't the first time Travis had heard about a library insider stealing from their collection. Insiders have the ability to steal almost at will. The problem for insiders has always been, and we've seen this again and again, the second half, the getting paid for the books, right? Bro, if you're going to be a thief, you got to know how to make money from the stuff that you steal. So you got the goods, but then you don't know where to take them without getting caught. The insider librarians and curators and archivists who steal from their own collections simply do not know how to fence their goods. So how was Priori able to pull this off? Well, he managed to do what other insiders failed to do. He had someone to fence his goods for him. He had an accomplice, someone who could push the books on the rare book market with minimal risk. 
What Priory had done was really the only way to do it to ensure that you're not going to get caught, right? And he had a fence, and that fence was John Shulman. You'll learn more about John Shulman and how he worked with Priory to live rare books for over 25 years after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. One block down the street from the main branch of the Carnegie Library was a bookstore called Caliban Bookshop. It was run by John Shulman and his wife, Emily Hetzel. John had built up a very prominent profile in the rare book trade. He was actually on the ethics committee of the... Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America. It's called the ABAA. And he was on its ethics committee. The ethics committee of the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America. Ooh, I know those parties were off the chain. This guy had all the bona fides of rare book selling. He was well-known. He'd been around a long time. People trusted him. He was an institution in Pittsburgh. He was on Antiques Roadshow, right? This guy seemed to be above reproach when it came to honesty and high-quality antiquarian book selling. You know, the only way lies work is if people expect you to tell the truth. So this guy was an excellent bookseller, but his reputation for honesty made him an even better fence. Together, Priori and Shulman were able to form a perfect pair of book thieves. Because after Priori would leave the library with the stolen goods on him, he'd walk one block to the Caliban bookshop where Shulman would take over. He was such a big part of antiquarian bookselling in the United States that many people knew him personally, right? It's a very tight-knit business, and many of the booksellers had sort of come up with him in the profession and worked with him and, you know, sort of traded. There's a lot of wheeling and dealing that goes along in this profession. And so many people liked him and took his part and were supportive of him. It was difficult at one level to convince people in the antiquarian bookselling business that this guy was actually a bad guy. They pulled this off for over two decades. And during that time, they were able to develop some tricks to cover their tracks. One of the things that Priory did as head of the collection was forge the collection records. As the head of this special collection, he had the ability to hide his thefts by getting rid of any cataloging information that these things existed. I mean, how do you know something is missing if it never existed in the first place? If you have the ability as an insider to get rid of the catalog information of the items in the collection, that means no one can request it. And if no one can request it, it's never going to turn up missing. It's like it didn't ever exist. And for maps or photographs that were cut out, the library 
they don't document the contents of a book. So an individual print could go missing and no one would know. I mean, that's pretty slick. If you think about the cataloging efforts at at any library, you're going to catalog a book, right? So you would catalog the McKinney and Hall prints as one thing, right? You wouldn't catalog it as several hundred different items within the book. You would just catalog it as that one thing. And so you don't have an indication of all of the things, all of the hundreds of things that were contained within book bindings that have been stolen. Priori is the gatekeeper who determines what books go in and out, which gives him another tool for his grift. And the police came across it in Schulman's warehouse. One of the things they found was a stamp that said, withdrawn from the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh. So John apparently used this stamp to make it look as if he was just selling stuff that the library had discarded. Yep. The library is about to discard some of their most valuable pieces. But the stamp worked. And once it became clear that no one would really be able to catch these guys, they had a smooth operation. Priory could take these things out of his library and then he could give them to Shulman and then Shulman could get either the market value or close to it for these items. That's the perfect scenario, right? That's the perfect scenario for the supply side. It's a perfect scenario for the demand side. You put these two together and you have this perfect loop, this perfect crime. If anyone in the rare book world suspected they were being sold stolen material, well, first, they look at Shulman's sterling reputation and think, nah, there's no way. This guy's not a con man. And even if they did decide to investigate it further, the person they'd go to to ask about it would be the head of collections who had all the info. And that was Greg Parry himself. And that's where any investigation would end. I mean, it was the perfect crime, but both men had a lot to lose. They knew if they got caught, their jobs and their reputations were at stake. But still, those risks seemed to be worth it because they built a system that they felt was foolproof. The only way these two were going to get caught was the way they did get caught. And that's because an outsider, someone at the Carnegie Library, decided they were going to, for insurance purposes, they were going to do the, an inventory of the collection. When the library hired a team of outside appraisers to do an audit, administrators gave them the inventory list from the 1991 appraisal. And with that, the appraisers got to work. On the second day of the appraisal, They noticed the books they were checking, well, something wasn't right. They'd open a book and the images were cut out. Atlases were missing maps. There were whole pages missing. The people who were doing this inventory, who were doing this audit, noted that the bindings were sort of collapsing in on themselves because there was nothing in there to support the bindings, right? Which is tragic. So for years, those books just sat there, or really just the covers. And in one case, one of these auditors was brought to tears by the sight of this. It'd be hard enough to figure out what was gone. But the prospect of recovering these items, items that had been taken out over the course of 25 years, they'd be long gone. Two suspects are going to be sentenced in April. Now, as for those items that district attorney's office is saying, that includes a journal from George Washington worth a quarter of a million dollars. What would drive them to do it? 
Why would Priori and Shulman, both well-known, respected members of their trade who understood more than the average person how valuable these items were? Why would they sacrifice all of that? You'll find out after the break. During that second appraisal in 2017, Priori was kind of shaking in his boots. He was noticeably uncomfortable. He was giving the appraisers inconsistent answers, or ones that didn't make any sense at all. He later told the library administrators that he felt overwhelmed with all of the questions. But his confusion confused everyone else. Priori had been working in there since 1992, so there's just no way that he's not going to know where everything is in that room. Library administrators interviewed Priori, and he told them that he'd been lax with security. Sometimes he let interns, volunteers, maintenance folks, and others hang around in the room without staying to watch them. Oh, yeah, I can absolutely see that. Hey, what are you guys doing after work? We're going to hang around in the old books room. Okay, Priori. The administrators knew something was up because there was just too much missing. Over 300 items by the auditor's count. And since there hadn't been one big robbery, the signs all pointed to a bunch of small robberies over many years. In April of 2017, library administrators, reeling from this huge loss, placed priority on leave. Then the police stepped in. And in June of 2017, they initiated a criminal investigation. Priori was fired from his job. His home was searched. Plus, the police went over his bank records. When he was arrested in 2018, Priori owned up pretty much immediately. The day that the detectives came to search his apartment, he admitted to them, and this is in the court records, that greed had come over him. That's a verbatim quote. That's what he told them. Greed came over me. He also added, according to the docs, I did it, but Shulman spurred me on. So not only is this dude desecrating old books, he's also a snitch. And part of the police's search found that Shulman's business, Caliban Bookshop, had paid priori 56 checks that amounted to over $100,000. Priori had also deposited $17,000 in cash. But otherwise, prosecutors don't really know how much money both men made over the course of this heist. We all know greed is a powerful motivator. Even if this might not seem like a lot of money, it can make a big difference. Priori had three kids in college and a fourth at a private school in Pittsburgh. And all that, it costs a pretty penny. I suspect it was at some point he wanted to buy something that he couldn't afford, right? And I don't mean he was, he wanted to buy a Porsche or something. I think he wanted to send his kids to a school that he couldn't afford to send them to, or he wanted to buy something for his kids, or he wanted to buy something for his wife. I think he was just trying to provide for his family. And he realized that, that as an employee of a library, he's never going to be a millionaire and he's not going to be able to afford a certain number of things and that he was, in fact, sitting on this 
sitting on this gold mine, essentially. Items that nobody ever looked at and no one would ever look at and that he could probably sell for a few hundred bucks. Just think about it. Pari was in that room every single day. He was the only one who looked at the collection regularly. So few visitors came through. So what's one book, one map, one drawing? Nobody comes to see this stuff anyway. Who's going to miss it? He thought, you know, this is going to be a victimless crime. No one's ever going to see these things anyway. No one's ever looked at them as long as I've been here. And then I think it sort of grew out of control. With no oversight, Priori tumbled down that slippery slope. Greg just sat there day after day realizing that nobody was watching, paying attention, and that just emboldened him to do it more and more. I mean, isn't that what most of us do, even on a proportionally smaller scale? You sit down to watch TV with a bag of potato chips. You promise yourself you're only going to eat a few. Then 10 minutes later, you're turning the bag upside down, trying to get the crumbs out of the corner. Because you eat one, then one more, What's one more than another? Once you cross the line, once you steal that first item, it just gets easier. In the year leading up to the 2017 audit, Priori reportedly stopped taking items out of the library. He knew that the outside appraisal would be the end of it. But there wasn't much he could do other than wait with dread, fear, and regret. He must have sort of crossed the Rubicon where he realized at some point someone's going to want to look at this Blau Atlas and they're going to find that there are 10 maps missing or 50 maps missing or 100 maps missing and then my goose is cooked. And he must have realized that within a a couple of years and he must have decided that I'm just going to pay for this eventually so I'm going to keep stealing. But it came at the expense of these items, rare original pieces that were forever lost or permanently damaged. We tend to think of something as greater than the sum of its parts. But in the case of atlases filled with maps and books filled with prints, that's not true. It's the opposite of that. So if you have, you know, John James Audubon, uh, quadrupeds or birds of North America, whatever, it's worth X amount of dollars. But if you, if you disbind that and you cut each of those maps out or you cut each of those prints out and you put it behind glass, you can sell them for much more, as it turns out. So the value of these things on the open market after they're broken is more than the value of them as an assembled piece. So the individual prints in a book can bring in more money than if you sold the whole book. But cutting up a book decreases its overall value. But that's different, of course, that's the monetary value. That's different than the value of them to our cultural heritage. So they are far more valuable together as items of research. They're far more valuable in their original bindings. In early 2020, the two men pled guilty. Both of them were sentenced to house arrest and probation. Priori got three years. Shulman received the longer sentence of four. Shulman's wife has since opened another rare bookstore under a new name. The damage Priori did to these books, books that he was responsible to protect, was permanent. For a man who committed his life to the preservation of rare archival materials, he also seemed to have no issue cutting these precious items into pieces. He had a lot of gall to carry the books right out of the front door. 
He may have loved his job, but clearly not enough to actually do it. But it also took 26 years for anyone else to find out. So what does it mean that no one was visiting the special collections to see one of George Washington's notebooks or Thomas Jefferson's signature? Even the library administrators never caught on in all that time. Any person left unchecked and without oversight might become tempted. You add in some financial pressures and then you might be able to see how they take that first book. After that, If you can find some excuses or explanations to justify the behavior, well, what's one more book? And if no one steps in for 26 years, then that's how you end up with over 300 items valued at $8 million missing or destroyed. So let me ask you a question. What if you knew you were only going to make so much money, no matter how good you were at your job? What if your lifestyle needs exceeded your income? And what if those needs were connected to your children? And what if you could commit a crime that you felt would hurt no one and you probably would not get caught? Would you do it? Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month. Or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. Part of being a nun is you don't live a luxurious lifestyle. You commit yourself to the church. Like if I learned anything from Catholic school, I know what nuns are supposed to do. And then to learn that they blatantly were doing the opposite of that, it's just kind of like a huge slap in the face. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Julia Doyle. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Tom Fuller. Production help from Megan Dietrich. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta at Output Media. Our production coordinators are Jennifer Mystery and Iker Egbatola. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.